crazy world we live in, it's the madness that gains the most notoriety. Killers and victims alike live on in infamy due to the public's unnatural obsession with the heinous. Welcome to the Aftermath, where we try to take a look into the worldwide fascination behind these stories. And now, ladies and gentlemen, I present to you, Mrs. Brandy Eldridge. Ian and Myra Brady. Backstory. Ian was born Ian Duncan Stewart from Glasgow, Scotland. His single mother was unable to pay for his necessities in life. So Mom left Ian in the care of a local couple whose name was John and Mary Sloan. But Mom would come for visits quite regularly. Eventually, the Mom's visits stopped occurring altogether. Why? Because she had a brand new husband. Probably wondering what kind of childhood Brady did have. It was the typical childhood as he grew up, you know? Collecting comic books, chasing frogs, torturing and killing small animals, setting dogs on fire. You know, all the typical kid stuff. Okay, maybe it wasn't that extreme. We really don't know if he collected comic books. I can try to find out if you'd like. Let me know. Okay, so, of course, he eventually gets into World War II and the Nazis. This possibly couldn't go wrong, right? You know, small animal killing, setting dogs on fire, combustible Hitler-Nazi combination. Huge fan of Mein Kampf, you know. That's probably his all-time favorite. Crime and Punishment might be up there, too. And anything else that the local library wouldn't carry. You know, books we all have sitting on our own bookshelves, you know. So he did eventually graduate from killing small animals to local crimes. Between the ages of 13 and 16, he was charged with housebreaking and burglary three times. After the third time, he moved in with his mother and stepfather in Manchester, England, where he took up crime again, spending time in two juvenile centers. In 1957, having learned bookkeeping while institutionalized, he got a job as a stock clerk at Millward's Merchandising, where he met Henley a year later. I mean, he was able to get his bookkeeping degree, so we'll give him that. As you can very bizarre and scary individual. So now, let's meet Myra. Thanks, Brandy. How could you guys not love this story? It's like Romeo and Juliet, if you added murder to it. Ignore that. Anyway, let's talk about Myra. Myra. His literal partner in crime. Compared to Ian, her childhood was very normal, except the fact her father was also an alcoholic who physically abused Myra. So, so yeah, he was kind of an asshole. As for her school, she wasn't there a lot, but when she did, she had good grades due to her grandma just keeping her home for any reason she felt like. But when she did have to go, she had excellent grades. She enjoyed sports and was very good at swimming. She wasn't considered very feminine and was nicknamed Square Ass because of her broad hips in her teens. She was a popular babysitter. When she was 15, a friend drowned. His name was Michael Higgins, and this drowning severely traumatized her. The reason it traumatized her, it was because Michael had asked Myra to go swimming with him, and she felt that if she had gone, she could have saved him from drowning. When she was 17, the lovebirds came a-calling, and she ended up being briefly engaged to Ronnie Sinclair. Can you believe it? The, uh, I don't know who that is. Keyword, briefly. Her mentality was, who's got time for all that marriage crap? I kind of wonder if this guy ever realized how big of a bullet he dodged. Then those lovebirds appeared again and introduced Ian to Myra. Myra was instantly struck with love for Ian. Ian, not so much. Given, he was given, given her time. After a dance, he offered to walk her home. And at that point, they started making out in the car, going for long walks, 
the latest gossip in and around their inner circle. Nope, they did what any romantic couple meant for each other would do. They sat down and talked about Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. Ian also went into detail how he did not feel rape was in the wrong. Because she was in love with Ian, Myra kept her hair bleached white and started wearing many skirts and long boots and even quit going to church because Ian didn't believe in God. As you can tell, this romance was unlike any other romance. Of course, the romance continued, and Ian, being the sweet talker that he was, talked about committing the perfect murder. And Myra's first date? So romantic. It was sunset, and they just went and abducted and killed someone. That someone was named Pauline Reed. That murder was November of 1963. And later that year, the second victim came this time, having abducted a 12-year-old boy named John Kilbride, who they raped, and Ian apparently tried to slit the child's throat, but couldn't do it. So he ended up strangling the kid with a piece of string. On June the next year was when they would strike again. This time it was a 12-year-old named Keith Bennett. Then on Boxing Day, they would strike again. This time they went to the fairground where they encountered a young 10-year-old named Leslie Ann Downey by asking her to help carry the packages they were carrying. They brought her to their home and undressed her and forced her to pose nude for photos. She was then raped and killed by one of them, the torture being recorded on tape and buried at Saddleworth Moor. On October 6, 1965, the incredibly insane couple invited a young child to their home. This time, the victim would be Edward Evans. Evans would meet his end the same by way of acts. Lizzie Borden would have been proud. David Smith, the husband of Myra's sister, was there as a witness. After deciding to not kill him and him helping clean up the crime scene, they thought David was a pretty okay guy. Unbeknownst to Myra or Ian, David Smith would go home and phone the police immediately. The police immediately searched the killer couple's house. That's when the police located Evans' body and the axe he used to murder Evans. The police showed up and arrested Ian, but he wasn't going without a fight. He tried blaming it all on the guy who actually called the police, David Smith. Look out, he's already arguing with the in-laws. Then on October 15th, the apartment they shared was searched. Guess what they found? They found pictures of the victim, Leslie Ann Downey, victim number four and the audio tape, which had Ian and Myra's voice alongside Downey's, and a notebook with John Kilbride's name on it, victim number one, and a picture of Myra standing on Kilbride's grave. These two weren't very good at hiding evidence, apparently. Ian and Myra had officially screwed the pooch. Again, they tried pinning it on Myra's brother-in-law, you know, the guy who initially called police. Now let's skip ahead to their court trial. It ended with both of them being found guilty, obviously. Ian got three counts of murder, Myra got two counts of murder, and accessory to the murder of John Kilbride. They would have gotten away with it too if it hadn't been for those meddling kids. They both were sentenced to life in prison. In 1985, Ian confessed to the murders of Pauline Reed and Keith Bennett. Surprise, surprise, the case was reopened. Ian took them to the bodies on July 1st, 1987. Still to this day, Keith's body has not been found. In 2002, Myra died of bronchial pneumonia at the age of 60, and in 2017, Ian died of an unspecified chest and lung condition at the age of 79. Ian and Meyer were definitely meant for each other. You know, Ian's history and all growing up. That doesn't excuse him for any of the crimes he committed. Myra should have followed Meatloaf's example and said, I'll do anything for love, but I won't do that. And maybe her life would have turned out a little bit different. Special thanks to CriminalMindsFandom.com for Brandy Eldridge 
I'm Daniel Hudson. Catch you next time on The Aftermath. <laughs>